Good evening, it is 5 p.m. and you're tuned in to Kingston Currents here on CFRC 101.9 FM. I'm CFRC's broadcast journalist, Christina Laurie, here to keep you up to date on all things limestone local news. Experts weigh in on the impacts of wildfire smoke inhalation and safety. Kingston is seeing blue skies again after smoky conditions last week as a result of the wildfires in Quebec and northeastern Ontario. While conditions cleared up on Thursday, with air quality health index readings returning to low-risk territory after staggering 10-plus ratings earlier in the week, many Canadians are still looking for clarification on what impact continued exposure may have on their health. Wildfire season has had an early and active start, and according to a recent update from the Government of Canada, June projections indicate the possibility of continued higher-than-normal fire activity throughout the summer. Should wildfires continue to impact your city's air quality throughout the season, What kinds of risks are there and how can citizens prevent negative health outcomes? Some short-term impacts of low air quality may include eye irritation, throat irritation, and flare-ups of some pre-existing conditions like asthma and eczema. I sat down with respirologist at Kingston Health Sciences Centers and Queen's University, Dr. Michael Fitzpatrick, to discuss some of the risks associated with low air quality. Here's what he had to say. To start us off, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Mike Fitzpatrick. I'm a respirologist at Kingston Health Sciences Centre at Queen's University, and I'm the Chief of Staff at uh, Kingston Health Sciences Centre. Great, thank you. And uh, although it may be difficult to put a specific timeline on it, where do we sort of cross over from short-term discomfort or risk into more concerning long-term consequences of inhaling wildfire smoke? Well, that's a great question. There's been a, some quite a bit of research about um, smoke pollution exposure, but there's no clear evidence of where that cutoff occurs. Um, we know that we get uh, irritation in our eyes and nose and throat from short-term exposure, even just being out for uh, 15 or 20 minutes would be enough to do that. But when it comes to things like, for example, intrauterine growth retardation, uh, where the baby inside a pregnant woman is small for, for its dates, that would take longer exposure. And um, similarly, for some of the mental health issues related to smoke pollution exposure, we think that takes a little bit longer. But it's but there's no clear timeline that we can say definitively this is when there's a there's a cutoff. For many things that we for example, patients who get uh, exacerbations of asthma or of COPD, that's short-term exposure. That occurs like right away. Um, and sometimes that exposure results in uh, a delayed admission to the emergency room um, or hospitalization, that, but it stirs up enough inflammation that then gets into a, um, gets a momentum so that the patient deteriorates and is admitted to hospital within um, a few days or a week. Um, so, so I think that, that um, I wish I could give you a very clear cutoffs, but I, but I can't. Thank you for sort of explaining that difference, though, between the short-term and the long-term impacts, both due to the current state of air quality in Ontario and with concern for what the rest of the summer has to bring. Many Canadians are wondering what impact continued exposure may have on their health. So could you describe some of the earlier symptoms folks should be on the lookout for and maybe some of the long-term overall impacts on health? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think in terms of the earlier impacts, the things that we sometimes see with heavy smoke pollution, uh, like we had over the last couple of days, are um, worsening of patients with underlying respiratory disease like asthma and COPD, uh, as I mentioned, needing to use more of their puffers because of that those exposures, and then coming to the emergency room or even even hospital admission. 
Similarly, there are reports of uh, older pa patients who've got heart disease, uh, suffering from uh, worsening of the heart disease, uh, having a heart attack or having heart failure with exposure to smoke pollution. And, and those things are, seem to occur um, re in, the, in the short term time frame, as opposed to other things we mentioned a few moments ago that they may take much longer. Mm -hmm. And you sort of just got into it there, but I was wondering if you could let folks know who is the higher risk for experiencing health impacts from uh, deteriorating air quality? So um, the people that are most at risk are the, the elderly, the frail elderly who have underlying um, respiratory or heart disease, um, th those things in particular uh, will tend to get exacerbation and particularly the patients with uh, asthma and COPD and certain other respiratory diseases as well. There are a few other groups that, that, I, that I didn't mention there that, that are relevant. And in particular, um, women who are pregnant um, there is a risk of, of premature birth with uh, heavy uh, smoke pollution exposure. Um, and there is also a risk to people who have eczema uh, that, that that may get worse and they may get even get a lot of itching of their skin even outside of the actual areas of, uh, of eczema. For folks who are high risk and for just everyone in general, what are some steps that can be taken to mitigate the impact of air pollution on the body? Good, uh, good question. Well, I think the first thing is um, to be practical. Try to keep that pollution out of your home if you can by keeping your windows closed and your doors closed. And if you have um, a good air filter, like a HEPA filter, that would be incredibly protective because the HEPA filter will take out all of those small particles that cause irritation uh, to, the, um, to the airways and to the body. And then the third thing I think is that if you're going outside in areas that are heavily polluted, wearing a mask is, is helpful. Ideally, an N95 mask especially if you have respiratory, uh, underlying respiratory disease um, or cardiovascular disease. And uh, the, the N95 mask is really helpful because it filters out those small particles. And unlike the surgical masks, which are actually very helpful, I mean, even one of the regular uh, masks that we've used throughout the COVID um, um, period, those masks are, are themselves um, helpful in terms of filtering the particles. The problem is that when we put them on, they're not airtight. And so the air that we breathe in comes in underneath the mask or around the mask, and the, and the mask isn't able to filter the air. So they tend not to be very effective when we're outside unless we hold them close to our nose and mouth while we're outside. So, so wearing a mask can be very helpful in terms of reducing that exposure. I think the other thing that's, that's, that's helpful to say is that it's not a good time to be out exercising when there's a high level of air pollution because our the amount that we breathe, the amount of air that we breathe in and out um, changes when we exercise and increases as much as five or six times what, what it is at rest. So uh, avoiding exercise when it's polluted is a very good idea. I mean, avoiding exercise outside, exercising indoors, um, especially where you have a HEPA filter, great, no problems. I also sat down with expert Dr. Huashin Shin, research scientist with the Environmental Health Science and Research Bureau of Health Canada, and an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics at Queen's University, who recommended similar health and safety measures. 
I was wondering if we could start mm-hmm. off by speaking just about some of the short-term impacts on health from exposure to low-quality air. Yeah, we can think about short-term exposure and long-term exposure. But if it is uh, related to forest fire, like the smoke these days, then it is a uh, short-term exposure. So short-term is like a daily or hourly peak, but long-term exposure is overall uh, exposure as background. So even though there were some you know, specific um, extreme events or episodes, but for long-term um, exposure, we are not considering a uh, daily, hourly, you know, peak. So the uh, effect from short-term exposure mm-hmm. is related to acute mortality or acute hospitalizations. However, long-term uh, exposure would be related to chronic disease, chronic hospitalizations. So there is uh, some difference between short-term and long-term. For longer-term impact, you were saying there it's a more extended period of time being exposed, of course. Should events like this continue to happen throughout the summer or if folks find themselves outside for an extended period of time, when should they start worrying about long-term impacts? Long-term, usually for long-term effect, we use annual exposure, but there are some different time window Mm -hmm. as well. My suggestion to avoid long-term exposure is uh, listen to the AQHI, that is Air Quality Health Index, and the Kingston has it for every hour, real time, you know, uh, forecasting. So if it is uh, high, then please uh, avoid going out, definitely. And if you are seniors or pregnant or uh, young children, then um, definitely, you know, avoid going out uh, whenever there is a high risk. So you don't need to know, you know, uh, what's the real concentrations, but if you know the index, it is from zero to 10, and the highest uh, uh, AKHI is 11, or we just call it 10 plus, then um, if it is uh, higher than eight or seven, then um, I would avoid or cancel any uh, outdoor activity or meeting outside, just for myself and for my family or relatives and friends. Uh, do you have any other tips for folks in Kingston and all over Ontario who are currently experiencing a deterioration in air quality? Yeah, it's sad to see that. Definitely keep watching the AKHI, like uh, not every uh, hour, but um, maybe in the morning, in the middle of the day, and you know, in the evening. When you plan to walk out for a short time period, you have to check the AKHI before you go out then that would be uh, you uh, uh, really protect yourself. Once again, that was two Queen's experts weighing in on the impacts of wildfire smoke inhalation and safety. You can find more information on the Government of Canada website. South Frontenac invites applications for 2023 Lake Ecosystem Grants. South Frontenac Township is inviting lake associations and other not-for-profit community groups looking to make positive changes in the health of lakes to apply for a lake ecosystem grant. The deadline for applications is Friday, August 4, 2023. The Lake Ecosystem Grant Program is designed to support projects focused on encouraging the preservation, restoration, monitoring, and analysis of lake ecosystems within South Frontenac. The program funds projects up to $10,000 that reduce or limit diffuse point source runoff caused by human disturbance of the land, 
create or increase shoreline buffer zones, protect or enhance wildlife habitat, or help with lake environment monitoring and data collection. I sat down with Christine Woods, senior planner at the Township of South Frontenac, to discuss the grant program. My name is Christine Woods, and I'm the senior planner with the Township of South Frontenac. I support our Lake Ecosystem Advisory Committee in a number of capacities, and one of them is in the Lake Ecosystem Grant Program that the Township has. The Lake Ecosystem Grant is a program that Council endorsed a few years ago, and we started to give out grants in 2021 under the program. It is a program that is intended to support and encourage the preservation, the restoration, monitoring, and analysis of lake ecosystems within the township. So we take applications from nonprofit organizations in the township for projects that would support that purpose of the program. Up till now, we've had $30,000 in each year dedicated to this grant program. Some of the objectives that we're looking for in projects are to reduce or limit runoff caused by human disturbance of land, creating or increasing buffer zones along the lakes and any creeks that drain into a lake, protecting and enhancing wildlife habitat, um, and looking at monitoring and inventories of lake environments to help fill knowledge gaps. So we've had several projects over the last two years that we have funded through the Lake Ecosystem Grant Program, and they come from a very diverse group of organizations and a lot of different projects. Christine also provided some examples of past projects. So some of the ones that we have been funded through the program include helping to fund the salary of an intern over the summer to do a lake stewardship plan for Dog and Cranberry Lake Association. They're also participating in the Love Your Lake program that's offered by Watersheds Canada. Another one that's actually been very active in the media is the Wolf Lake Association, which is towards um, Westport. They received funding from the township to have a um, lead buyback program. So they're created um, vouchers and they're working with local businesses so people can bring in their lead fishing tackle and get a voucher to get new non-lead or lead-free tackle. Um, and then they have a, a big education component. So they are participating in a lot of uh, festivals and events in the area to promote their, their project. Queen's University has a research station um, on Lake Apinacon in, in the township or just outside of the township. And then Queen's of course is, is just south of the township. So there's a lot of researchers that do work in our area and we are providing funding to some of their research projects that have a direct impact on our lakes and on our communities. So one of the projects is a turtle nest protection and relocation program. So it involves actually building nest protection devices, um, teaching people how to build them. And then there's also a component about um, when they find and protect the nest to move the nest to a more a safe location. So if the nests were in the middle of a driveway or a gravel road, then the, the eggs would be moved to a safer location where they have a greater chance of survival. Another example of a project with Queen's researchers is looking at the impact of road salt runoff on water quality and ecosystems in some of our lakes. And they think, we think from funding this and uh, the researchers think that the results will benefit the township. 
and it can be, we can perhaps use their findings to consider options for how and where and how much road salt is used on roads where the water runs into the lake. There's also a project looking at collecting eDNA, uh, environmental DNA, to identify invasive species so that we know which invasive species there are in lakes or which ones are, are coming to our lakes so that uh, there can be management plans put in place to help remove them or keep them from coming in in the first place. Uh, and there's also a project with the Nature Conservancy of Canada related to um, a popular property in the Battersea area. And that project, it had an education component for dealing with an invasive species. I believe they were looking at European buckthorn and possibly garlic mustard. Um, so they were going to have a few days where they had volunteers and community members come to the property to learn how to identify um, these invasive species that are impacting this property that a lot of people use. And it's also a conservation property. So how to identify and how to remove it. And so people could then go back to their own properties and use the, the tools that they've learned um, to help deal with the species if they're on their property. Um, and they also have an invasive species in one of the wetlands that's on the property. And so they, some of the funding will go to help remove that species from, from the wetland to help increase uh, or improve biodiversity. Hey, it's awesome to hear that the grant has funded so many fantastic programs in the past. What kind of groups are eligible to apply? Any nonprofit organization in the township or who does work in the township is eligible to apply for a grant. Um, we do have a definition of what a nonprofit organization is. So it's a community organization with an interest in the lake ecosystems within the township. You have to be able to show long-term sustainability through a robust volunteer base and a stable financial government and need to demonstrate that less than 75% of its operating budget comes from government grants. It's definitely something for organizations and community groups as opposed to individual landowners. Once again, that was Christine Woods with the South Frontenac Township discussing this year's Lake Ecosystem Grants Program. Interested groups can apply at southfrontenac.net slash grants. The Ontario Centre of Innovation, OCI, and Kingston Economic Development Corporation announced the establishment of a dedicated Kingston office to support commercialization and scale-up of startup companies in eastern Ontario in mid-May. In March 2023, OCI hired a business development and commercialization manager for the eastern Ontario region. This manager is Share Powers and is now based out of Kingston Economic Development's offices in Kingston and works closely with both OCI and Kingston Economic Development's team to support companies driving Ontario's economy to greater prosperity, health, and sustainability. In her role, Share Powers supports collaborations between industry and academia, encouraging entrepreneurs and company leaders to aspire to create globally scalable products and services. She will provide clients with insight, mentoring, coaching, and support entrepreneurs, startups, and high-growth companies, acting as a connector, facilitating the introduction of people and companies to share business, technical knowledge, and experience. Earlier this month, I sat down with Share Powers to discuss how the OCI office has settled into Kingston and their work in Kingston's business community so far. 
To start us off, would you like to introduce yourself and provide a bit of information about the work you folks do at Ontario Centre of Innovation? Sure. Yeah. So I'm Cher Powers and I am the Business Development and Commercialization Manager for OCI for the Kingston and kind of Western Eastern Ontario region. Uh, so geographically, my region goes from Quinty West to Brockville. Um, and then I'm also supported by the Ottawa area business development people as well. Um, OCI has been around for 36 years. They just celebrated their 36th anniversary as a not-for-profit. So they're a not-for-profit standalone entity, um, not a government organization or department. And as a not-for-profit, um, we secure funds mainly from the provincial government and a little bit from the federal government as well to create and administer programs to help um, companies and researchers develop technologies in Ontario. Um, and we do this in a couple of ways. So we do this through non-dilutive grant funding programs, and we also have two investment funds, uh, one which is sector agnostic, the ready for market, and then we have a life sciences innovation fund as well. Fantastic. And I get the impression that uh, OCI coming to Kingston has been in the works for a long time. What was sort of the process of getting an office established here? Yeah, I'm not sure of the background as far as the process went, but I know my director, uh, Jeff Van Heumann, he uh, recognized that in Eastern Ontario and in the Kingston region in particular, with so much going on that uh, it was time to have somebody here again. I think from what I've heard, um, you know, there was somebody here maybe about 10 years ago dedicated to this area. Um, but then uh, since then, it has, you know, really fallen under the geographic area of the Ottawa business development managers. Um, so I guess, you know, just basically based on what's going on and all the great work happening at Queens, obviously, and uh, St. Lawrence and Green Center and KPM and everything with the electric vehicle value chain that's happening here. Um, related to um, batteries for electric vehicles and rare earth metals, you know, happening with like cyclic and Lifecycle and Nucor, uh, you know, they really wanted to make sure that OCI was accessible to be able to support those researchers and those companies. Absolutely. And I believe you're sharing a space with Kingston Economic Development. And I was wondering what the nature of the partnership was between these two entities. It's really just that, you know, I mean, Kingston has a great innovation ecosystem and uh, Invest Kingston has always been a big part of that for sure. And they were just more than gracious to step up and offer space uh, to have me here. So yeah, really beautiful office space here and just being co-located with them. It's beneficial to both parties. So, uh, you know, they work with a lot of companies in area startups and SMEs, particularly in the life sciences and then in the clean tech sectors. Uh, and then, you know, those are the type of companies that we want to support as well at OCI. So it's just a lot of natural, you know, alignment in values and priorities. And you can see it, um, it's working already. So having being co-located here, uh, you know, I am available when companies come by to, you know, be involved in meetings and work with Invest Kingston to say, okay, well, here's a company or here's a researcher that needs help. Um, how can we help them or how can we work together? And that's already happening. And then I'm, you know, two doors down is somebody that I can go and talk to and, um, you know, make a connection or ask a quick question. And it's, it's just working out really well. Amazing. Yeah, that's great to hear. And I was also going to ask, what sort of opportunities can OCI offer for Kingston businesses and owners and entrepreneurs? Yeah, so we have many uh, different programs for sure. So we have uh, the one that's particularly advantageous to researchers at Queen's is our C2C program, Collaborate to Commercialize. And that's a grant funding program where we'll match one-to-one uh, -one 
uh, dollars contributed to a project from a research partner to work with an academic institution researcher. And this is available at St. Lawrence as well to their researchers and with all of the work that they're doing in applied research. Um, but yes, we have the program for academics to link with industry researchers, and that's non-dilutive grant funding. Um, but then we also have the two uh, investment funds where OCI would, would come in as a follow-on investor on the same terms as the other investor who is for a company that's maybe doing a pre-seed or a seed round of uh, to raise capital to you know scale their operations and scale their technology and grow their business. Uh, we also have a whole suite of programs uh, through our OVEN, uh, kind of our OVEN portfolio. So OVEN used to be a the Autonomous Vehicle Innovation Network. Now it's the Ontario Vehicle Innovation Network. And their mandate is to really, you know, um, make Ontario a leader in, um, you know, autonomous and electric vehicle development and everything that's in that value chain. And they have a whole suite of programs, non-dilutive grant programs for research and development. Um, and then they have programs for talent development. So uh, similar to something like MyTax, where we would uh, support the hiring of an intern at a company or at an academic institution. Um, and they're also being a leader in developing strategies and roadmaps uh, in relation to that sector. Um, what else do we have? So we also have, um, well, this is one that's really cool. And I did talk about this uh, with, um, was it Darren or Daryl from Global? Um, we talked about the, it's called, so our Digital Competency Center has a program that's similar to the federal CDAP program, and it's the provincial counterpart, and it's a digital map uh, creation program where we would fund half of the cost for a company to bring in a consultant to develop a, a roadmap for them to adopt technologies that would either be to improve their business processes or to improve um, manufacturing processes, like something automate something that's on their manufacturing line. And this has given us an opportunity to expand our network and work with even more companies and support more companies that we normally wouldn't work with uh, in relation to developing technologies. So these would be more, you know, companies that are adopting technologies, not developing them. And so that's been really, really popular uh, with a lot of manufacturers and cabinet makers and people in the ag tech sector. You also mentioned throughout that the collaborations between industry and academia that you're planning to facilitate. What sort of connections are you making so far? You know, since I've been away for a bit, just getting uh, re- acquainted with uh, who's working on what and getting to know some of the companies and the, the SMEs that are in the area. So I've been doing a lot of relationship building and outreach and, you know, building trust. Uh, people are super excited. Uh, the OCI has a dedicated presence here, here now. Um, so we just want to build the brand and build the trust and let people know what we can do. Um, but I can tell you already, you know, uh, I've been involved with a lot of applications um, from Queens with industry partners in relation to health tech. I'm seeing a lot of, um, you know, health data technologies being developed or technologies that would improve the processes in the healthcare sector that, you know, currently create an administrative burden for either nurses or doctors. Um, so I'm seeing a lot of that. Um, and then I was at, well, this is kind of cool. So I was at the um, Center for Health Innovation at Queen's on Thursday. Uh, they held their annual symposium and it's a really amazing, that's actually a really good example of collaboration and partnership in the ecosystem. So uh, Queen's, the city of Kingston, Invest Kingston, 
St. Lawrence and um, other organizations partnered to create this Center for Health Innovation. And it, um, they, um, at their symposium, they showcased a bunch of research projects that are happening at Queen's. And one that really stood out to me, which is really interesting, is that um, there was researchers in mechanical engineering uh, creating a treatment for cancer. So, like, that's so cool. You would never think that, you know, mechanical engineering would lead you to do research in cancer. <laughs> I mean, you personally, you've worked in Kingston before. How are you finding settling back in and getting reacquainted with the community here? Oh, well, it's great. I mean, everybody here is so welcoming, but Kingston, too, just has, like I said, this really... Uh, amazing innovation ecosystem. Um, and everybody's really collaborative. So um, nobody gets territorial. It's really collaborative. It's all about, you know, um, increasing opportunities in this area, helping the local SMEs, attracting new startups and SMEs. Uh, like in particular, if you see what's going on with Reaction Hub, uh, you know, um, attracting, making this a uh, place where startups and SMEs can come to pilot their chem technologies uh, and, you know, scale them up. So, you know, I just, you know, it's great to settle in and everybody is more than, like, it's more than happy for me to be here. Um, everybody's offering office space. So it's not just Invest Kingston. Launch Lab has said, come here anytime and use our space. You know, Fractal, I've been up on the west end of town at Fractal, meeting with, um, you know, potential industry partners there. And yeah, it's just really welcoming. Once again, that was Cher Powers discussing the Ontario Centre of Innovation's office settled in Kingston. That is all things current in Kingston for this week. Thank you for listening to CFRC's local news programming brought to you by the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada under the Local Journalism Initiative. Be sure to stay tuned for more CFRC programming coming up next.